Welcome to Next in Nonprofits. I'm Steve Boland, and I could not be happier to introduce a very significant group of my friends, but there are five of them with me here today. So I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves. I'm going to talk a little bit about why we're all here. But first, why don't we go ahead and get started? Uh, Jason Vienna. I'm the executive director of The Open Door. We're a hunger relief organization in Egan, feeding uh, a little over 5,000 people a month. And I'm a proud member of the Hamlin cohort that went to graduate school with Steve Boland. (laughs) Dan Keller. I work with the Global uh, Programs Alliance at the University of Minnesota. Hello, I'm Michael Brink. I'm an independent development consultant. Happy to be here. Good to see everybody. I'm Shannon Forney. I'm the business manager at the Amherst H. Wilder Foundation, serving folks in St. Paul. I'm Derek Madsen. I serve as the executive vice president of resource development at Common Bond Communities and uh, consider myself an adopted member of the cohort. (laughs) (laughs) So you've heard uh, the word cohort a couple of times here. And what I want to ask all of my friends to talk about today is what, unfortunately for the nonprofit world, is I think a a too unique experience that we all went to graduate school together, but uh, as opposed to some other experiences where you may have a class or two with the same group of people, uh, we all, Derek, a little accepted here and a couple of other members um, mostly had every single class together um, and got to know each other over a couple of year period in graduate school um, from very different backgrounds and different um, nonprofit missions in different places. And that we all um, uh, went to school 2009, 2011. Some of us started earlier, some of us graduated later, but that, that two year period was kind of when we got to know each other. And since 2011, have continued to be in touch uh, about not just our personal lives, but also our professional lives. And that's why I asked everybody together today to t- celebrate a little milestone for the Next in Nonprofits podcast that uh, this is our 100th episode. Woo! And woohoo! Let's hear it. And while most of these episodes have focused on a very specific topic of nonprofit interest, I think that what's missing from many of nonprofit professionals' lives is the ability to have a cohort of people that know what you know, that understand things that you understand, to go back to and to talk to. Um, There's a few reasons why I think that this is really important, but I want to start with one for folks. uh, um, I'll start with Jason on this as he has the executive director title. Some of us have had that title in the past, and some of us may have that title again in the future. But when you are in the lead staff position of an organization, you don't really have a peer in the group to talk to. You have board members who you report to. You have staff members who report to you. But you don't have somebody at your level of the organization to go, you know, I want to troubleshoot this problem. I want to kind of think about this thing through. And you can't always go to somebody that's in a subordinate position and, and get the same kind of feedback that you'd expect. And board members are problematic for some of the same reasons. It's not that we don't talk to those people. But I think the idea of somebody who is not in that kind of a power dynamic relationship can give us different things to think about. So, Jason, as you've been exploring the work and the role of an executive director of a nonprofit, how do you think about getting uh, feedback or answering questions uh, in that way or about that question of uh, being kind of that one person at the top of the employment but reporting to the board? Yeah, that's a great question. And I've been an executive director for just over two years now. And before I became an executive director, I'd read in graduate school and in other books that it's the loneliest position. But there's a lot of truth to that because not only do you not have a a defined set of peers that you can talk to, you also have a lot of things of confidential nature that you have to be mindful of who you talk to. And so, yeah, how have I built that? You know, thankfully in Dakota County where I work, 
We have a group of nonprofit executive directors that meet on a uh, semi-monthly schedule, and we're able to share and have some shared learning, but it's it's once every two months, and it's it could be six people, could be 12, depends on who shows up. So it's not, not the same as having a trusted group of people with a shared experience. And so I've, I've been able to get things from that group, which is nice, but to have the shared experience that we've had, um, or even, you know, if you didn't go to grad school, not everybody can have that experience, someone that you've worked long enough to know enough what you can call them for. You know, I, I can call Derek and talk about affordable housing if I need to. I, I can call Steve and, well, I can ask you a, a thousand different questions <laughs> or I can just listen to your podcast. Uh, but I mean, that the importance of being able to bounce your ideas off of someone and learn from other people's mistakes, I found has been absolutely vital. Let me ask Derek if you'd pick up the mic next and talk a little bit about your experience um, literally being physically sort of isolated from the rest of us for uh, a lot of this period when you were working further away and now um, working closer to some of the people that you went to school with, um, both moving from that executive director title into um, a, a still position of responsibility, but within a larger organization, so not the lead staff person. How do those things shift for you in terms of thinking about feedback and sharing? You know, I think, um, I think Steve, the, the thing is that you have to, as Jason said, look, what are your existing networks and how do you leverage them? So, you know, when I was geographically isolated, when I was in Winona, you know, I was part of a, you know, really large federated national nonprofit. So I had an opportunity there to get to people in a same job role in a, you know, separate independent nonprofit who had the same dynamic. So I could call the Red Wing, Red Wing YMCA executive director, Rochester, others, and get some of that peer experience. But those folks, you know, you have to acknowledge dynamics of culture and experience and other things within the why, um, where their, their perspective, their advice didn't always match up. Whereas I see a lot more of my cohort as my peers, right? And, and you know, generationally, um, from an experience perspective, um, you know, I think as an emerging first-time executive director, um, you don't always want to go to the person who has 30 years experience <laughs> in that same role because their experience just isn't the same and, you know, the context has changed. So, you know, for me, there were definitely times when I was in Winona where I was calling cohort members, you know, in some cases to get advice, but often to be that trusted source that you could vent off to, you know, especially living in a small community, um, 27,000 people, you're in that executive director role, you're kind of a pseudo elected official. And so you really can't um, talk about some of those frustrations or some of those challenges or troubleshoot in a way uh, that is productive. So I, I found that there were multiple times that the cohort was really, uh, you know, helpful. You know, when I've transitioned back here to the city, you know, um, it was nice to be welcome back. We mm -hmm. had that we had that social gathering um, to come back to feel like you have a peer group that you're connected to. Um, you know, and I see a lot of value in that social connection. Um, you know, while now I'm in a large organization, I have peers at my level who we can talk about organizational issues with, sector issues with, and we're pretty well connected across, you know, similar nonprofit types and sizes. So, you know, now I think the cohort has transitioned a little bit more to be that social support for, you know, and, and another network to leverage, really. Yeah. And Steve, just to add to that, because I think as I listen to you talk, Derek, I think it's really important to acknowledge the vulnerability aspect of the social support, because I mean, best practices, there, there are blogs and there are podcasts and there, but when you're trying to learn how to do your job better, it takes a lot of vulnerability. You have to have enough of a relationship to be honest about whatever you're struggling with, your shortcomings, 
And that's essential because especially even as a human being, you don't want to be isolated and struggling. But in your professional life, when you're supposed to project confidence and you're supposed to project that you know what you're doing, having someone trusted that can somehow relate to the challenges in front of you uh, and help you find your way through it, I, I think that's essential. So there's, there's, there's two buckets as you think about developing your network, the professional side and then the, the personal side. So I'm going to get to everybody on this same question, but let me start with Shannon on this one because you're um, just ahead of recording. We're saying that uh, the changes that we've all been through since this time together, I mean, personal changes, absolutely, but you've had a couple of professional ones that switched those networks around quite a bit in the last few years. So as you've moved from uh, the position you had while we were in school uh, together to uh, trying to do some consulting type work at Next End Nonprofits and then finding that wasn't quite the right niche for you and then coming to Wilder, which is a much larger organization than you worked at before. All those switches, I, I think, require something different in, in what uh, both Derek and Jason were talking about. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, the last two years of life, I've probably had more changes uh, in my professional and personal life um, than the, the previous 10 uh, and that's been working with both small organizations, large organizations. So I have worked where I was one of two staff members. Um, both of us were very part-time. That was for a neighborhood organizing group. And now I'm at a foundation of um, upwards of 400 employees and so many programs that even though I've been here six months, I probably couldn't even name them all. So um, that's a really broad set. Um, and there there have been stops in between, um, including doing consulting work through next to nonprofits. And I guess the thing that I come to is that there is a, um, there's a precision about how and when to be vulnerable, mm-hmm. but really looking at vulnerability as a strength and, and the, the ability to be authentic and be your real self in, in a workplace and let other people see that um, and really bring your real self to the work. Um, that has been, I think, the most empowering and sort of powerful position to just be real um, and you know there are there are um, different liabilities about being vulnerable in a small organization you know if you if it's, you can imagine this right there are different vulnerabilities about the small org um, version um, than being vulnerable in a big organization but I think that that is the the factor that exists across our nonprofit work, or, or that has been kind of the thing that's been helpful to me, is to find ways and places and people with which you can be vulnerable. Um, that is less often direct coworkers, um, and more often I do come back to this type of a group, or if they're you know affinity groups for the sector that I'm mm-hmm. working in or, or whatnot. Um, but I do think that there's a you develop the ability to be vulnerable and truthy and pithy over time. So I think that is also one of the benefits of this cohort group is that we've known each other for a very long time. And so um, I think that there, I I kind of go back to this moment of um, early on in my nonprofit career, I I interviewed and had uh, the opportunity to become an executive assistant. And I was so delighted, and it was with you know a pretty high-profile arts group. And this cohort, this group of people said, what are you thinking? You've got so much more than being an executive assistant. And at the time, that was really hard for me to hear. Um, I didn't like that advice. And it has ended up being the best career advice that I have maybe ever gotten um, from a group of people who I really trusted. 
and to look at opportunities from multiple angles. And you know, this is going back to that, that concept of we all have shared knowledge. These, this group of people didn't just see me as, oh, you're you know, an artist, arts administrator moving into the nonprofit sector. Because from that perspective, yeah, working at this really high-ranking arts org would be amazing. But this group of people said, we know that you have skill sets a lot deeper than what just an, an executive assistant might do. And we'd like to push you to actually use those skill sets. So that was, um, yeah, this group has been really important, I think, to um, sometimes hear difficult advice and um, have people really be truthful back to you. Michael, I'm going to ask you to um, to take a stab at the same question, again, from a very different journey, having been on staff at nonprofit organizations, but this whole family part of our lives changing and has changed where you've been. So why don't you kind of tell me what you think about what that has meant to you to have this support through those things? Well, to kind of go back to grad school, I did, did a few stints in grad school, and they were the wrong, it was the wrong program. And then I remember I specifically went and visited a class with everybody in the room here but Derek he joined us later on it was like wow this is this is my group of people because I mean nobody would I mean nobody was quiet it was just constant chatter and ideas and I visited another class at another uh, graduate program and it was like the professor was like it was like pulling teeth to get people to talk and I was like I, I found my group of people and it's just been like Shannon said really nice to get to to bounce ideas off people, especially right now I'm working on consulting projects and I'm working with a lot of volunteers. I've worked with volunteers for a long time and, and on boards and whatnot, but when you're especially when you're trying to teach people fundraising tactics, like best practices, and they don't listen to you, <laughs> <laughs> it's really frustrating because no, that's not how you do it. And here's why, and, and I'm getting a lot of pushback right now on a fellow uh, capital campaign committee member who really has no desire to learn a new skill. Um, he's you know nearing retirement, and it's just I'm in charge of recruiting other people to be part of, do peer-to-peer -peer asks, and I'm asking other people in you know in the cohort and other people in development that um, you know I'm doing the right thing, and it's just like I'm kind of stacking the deck on purpose with people that are going to come in and fundraise the right way and it's just it's because I ask the right questions of other people it's, there's lots of people on the, around this table that have done really cool things in development and I trust my peers for advice um, rather than listening to a lot of other people I mean everybody's mentioned vulnerability I, I feel I can be really authentic and um, really speak the truth when I talk to people in my cohort so Good. Dan, also a different journey from, you know, traditionally nonprofit employment in the way that we were maybe studying. So how does going to school inform kind of your journey after that, but staying connected to this group? Yeah, well, initially um, I joined the program because I had always been interested in the nonprofit sector, um, curious about maybe you know, possible employment opportunities in nonprofits. I didn't really have any experience working in nonprofits before. I came from a for-profit company who at the time was offering tuition assistance and also no raises. So, <laughs> you know, it's like, well, this is pretty much the only way I'm going to be able to get more money. So, um, you know, signed up for the program and it was just sort of a happy accident. You know, I didn't quite do as much research into the uh, prospective groups as Michael did, but, um, you know, luckily happened into our particular group. And I'll, I'll say that 
Um, you know, since then, I've worked, you know, moved from the for-profit um, into education, first K-12, and now at, um, you know, <clears throat> secondary or post-secondary education at the University of Minnesota. Um, and my experience and my connections with the cohort have actually come in fairly handy. So even though the University of Minnesota is maybe not your traditional nonprofit, um, they do share a lot of things in common. There's a lot of fundraising that has to happen. The group that I'm in, the Global Programs and Strategy Alliance, um, it's a very small unit in a very big university. And within our unit, we have other subunits that are, you know, they get all of their funding through grants and fundraising. Um, for example, China Center and Confucius Institute. So working with them um, in my role as uh, a system administrator in the IT side to help them, you know, give them the tools that they need to, to do the best. A lot of the language and a lot of the things that they're facing are very familiar, um, you know, based on my experience with the cohort. So a lot of good themes that um, I wasn't expecting the vulnerability question. That was a really good one. It, it's something that it's come so naturally, I think, with our group in particular because of the shared experience of having presented work in front of each other in grad school and literally being graded for it. I mean, it's kind of um, hard, I think, to have that experience with other people where there's somebody who is the final judge of whether you did a good job or not, and you're laying it out there in front of a group of people knowing that that final judge gets the final say. And you just get used to saying, well, I can do this in front of this group of people. Now, if I can share that, um, you know, work in front of this group and, and get that feedback from them, then, you know, whatever that final arbiter may be, my board of directors, my executive director, my community that I'm trying to raise money from, um, it, it shifts the balance a little bit. So I think that I'd, I'd like to just ask everybody to reflect a little um, quickly on that idea of um, how do you see that ability of, you know, who is your arbiter and does it make a difference to you now to kind of get feedback outside of the arbiter? I mean, whatever that might be in your world. And I don't know if anybody in particular wants to start. Um, well, here, let's just start at the end and we'll move our way down. So, Jason, why don't you tackle that? Well, I, I think, you know, who, whoever your arbiter is or isn't, that, that changes for folks. But yeah. you, you have to intentionally seek honest feedback. And I think that in the same way that, Michael, you, you visited other classes that had different dynamics, you know, something that was wonderful and hopefully not unique to our group was that we... We did have vulnerability. I can't remember where it started or yeah. who started it with, but it didn't. It didn't come that way. It didn't come out of the box that way. And so, whatever, you know, whoever's listening to this, whatever your network is, because they probably didn't have our awesome cohort <laughs> from grad school. But you know, how do you go about seeking that type of feedback? Because that's giving. It's one thing. Receiving is another. But you've got to you got to seek it. You have to be open to it. And so, that feedback in graduate school, and I can think of countless things that I learned from each person around this table. Something yep. that in a presentation or in a project or in a paper, a different approach or something, some type of feedback, but it had to be sought. And you know, we had a naturally occurring environment to do it in, but you can create that environment without being in graduate school. But the key is seeking it and, and taking the risk of, of being vulnerable with other people. Because I think, Shannon, something I heard you saying is that if you're able to be authentic, it, it, it empowers other people to be authentic. And I think that's, it, it, it's, it, feedback is, I mean, it's priceless. Yeah. 
So, Dan, I mean, who, who decides or, or tells you whether you're doing a good job? And do you ask for outside people to weigh in differently from that? Um, yeah, absolutely. So at the university, and I don't know if this applies across the board, um, but at least in our unit and the, with the, the other folks that I've spoken with, there's a lot of uh, great job you're doing, oh. you know, uh, everybody's very pleased with how you're doing, whether or not maybe that's actually the case. Um, and so you really do have to seek out that feedback. And also being in the role that I'm in with IT, a lot of the people who might be in the position to give me feedback don't fully understand what it is that I'm doing. So that makes it difficult for them to, um, to really give me anything useful. So what I've done in that, uh, in that situation is I've just sought out my peers and people in my same sort of role across different units in the university since it's such a broad, um, a broad place and, you know, sort of looked to them for feedback and for, um, advice going forward. Um, so, you know, similar to, to how our cohort was basically people from all, from different backgrounds working in different things, but all kind of with the shared interest. Michael? Well, obviously I, I was thinking while Jason was talking, I think back, I, I'll be honest, I hate getting up in front of a room and giving a presentation. There's, I, I'd rather do some really difficult work around my house than get up and talk <laughs> in front of people, even friends. Um, but go back to grad school, our last presentation. I worked with Jason for a few days on it, and that was the best presentation I ever done. And there's some really good presenters sitting around this table. I mean, a lot better than me. And I, I learned a lot, and it's it took a lot of vulnerability to do that. And... You know, I feel a lot more comfortable but uh, doing that now, but just the projects I'm doing now, especially I reach out to people that have done similar projects, whether it's as a consultant or in a paid role, it's, um, there's a lot of ambiguity, uh, especially with things I'm working on, and it's, I, uh, I oftentimes really need to say, is this the right thing I'm doing, or what are, I, I always like ideas and getting people's opinions, because there's, I like to learn, and other people have been doing this a lot longer than I have, so how can I learn from them and, and vice versa? And um, it's just, I think if I if I don't learn something new every day about development or the nonprofit world, then I need to look back and say to myself, you know, maybe you need to read an article in the Chronicle of Philanthropy or meet up with somebody for coffee or lunch and learn about that what they're doing. Because I mean, we're all doing the same work and we can all learn from each other. And I just. I'm, like Jason said, I hope people can really find their network and feel comfortable with people um, and really be honest because how else are you going to be successful in your work and help the people that your organization is serving without uh, learning best practices and uh, learning not how to fail um, from other people's failures. So, Thanks. Shannon? Mm -hmm. So I think the question is, uh, who calls us to account in our nonprofit mm -hmm. work? And... Um, well, that, let me phrase yeah. that for a second because I use the word arbiter as in somebody else gets to decide whether that was good or not. Mm -hmm. um, wh whether they choose to call you to account, I think Dan raises a really good question, is in part about do they understand what you're doing? <laughs> can, they, can they give you that kind of feedback? And if they can't, where, where else can you get that feedback? You know, in, in grad school, it's literally somebody's job to grade you, but in your professional work post-grad school, you know, how do you decide if that person is the one that's supposed to to be in charge of saying you're doing a good job or, you're, or you need to improve in these areas. How do you work with that and get feedback outside of that? Um, well, I guess as I've 
grown into my nonprofit career, I feel more called by the people I serve, yeah. by the people the work serves. So I probably feel less beholden to you know my boss or sort of senior um, management, and I feel much more called to account by you know the clients, the the people who are directly benefiting from the work that the, mm -hmm. the nonprofit is doing. Um, that is not direct. <laughs> that rarely is that a direct uh, process. Yeah. Um, so I would say, again, that that takes time. Um, it requires listening, but you don't have to listen that hard. I mean, people share their opinions about you know your work, your org, what would make it better. People are happy. Most of the time I find that if you ask for someone's input or feedback, they're, they're generally really willing and ready to give it. Um, so, so yes, I suppose um, I probably put the most weight on the people that uh, the people that I serve, and don't really have uh, a methodology uh, to kind of collect that feedback. But I think part of it is just paying attention. Yeah. I also think that there are times where <clears throat> I've probably gotten the most direct feedback when it was um, not very positive or glowing. Yeah, and so. And I think those are really the moments where um, you can, again, um, may hurt to hear at first or feel uncomfortable to some degree, but th that's really where the learning is, is to understand where those moments of friction or how your deliverable is not what the client expected or, um, you know, a myriad of things that you come across in the nonprofit sector. But um, so I would say I feel kind of called to the field uh, as much as I do called to um Hierarchy, though, and I do want to say one of the things I'm seeing other, um, particularly, I, I, don't, I see this happening in the arts sector, arts organizer sector, where administrators are putting out a survey about themselves. I've seen this a couple of times on Facebook. People who I highly respect in our local field have put out an actual electronic survey to say, "How's my work? How is this?" Because they're not just working at their work and in their org. They're working when they you know, are out on the town or, you know, going to Art of World or at the state fair. And so I haven't any, I'd be very curious to know if those types of tools um, work. And back to Dan's point, I also don't know, um, because those are not people you are directly serving, can they actually, can they actually give you helpful feedback or are they themselves willing to be vulnerable and authentic enough to tell you things that are not necessarily pleasant or easy to hear? Cool. Derek? Uh, picking up on, I think, some of the thoughts that Shannon had and then back to Jason's earlier comment about learning and developing your first executive director role, I think my time in Winona was really, um, you know, it was deeply challenging for me. It was a huge growth period for me. And I think to this question of who is the arbiter, um, I learned a great deal about how to evaluate whether the person who's providing the feedback and the judgment and the, you know, um, whether that's an opinion that you should or need to pay pay attention to, mm -hmm. because I think, you know, in that instance, there were a lot of situations. Whether it was people who, in a board role, because of their responsibility or perceived responsibility as a board member, um, community members, donors, um, who are you know opining on performance, who are opining on direction, you know, strategy, 
um, in, in many cases, very granular operational decisions that you're making in the organization as a membership organization. I think there's a unique aspect to that. I had to really learn to, to evaluate, is this a perspective um, that I can derive value from, um, that I need to pay attention to because of my responsibility? Um, you know, because I think there are times where you just have to say, you know, this, this opinion, this perspective, I can acknowledge it, I can affirm it, um, but it doesn't actually add value to the work I'm trying to do. Yeah. Or in some, in some cases, and in some ways, yeah. it actually is trying to detract value from the work I'm trying to do. And, um, you know, I think when you have this, when you have this, in our case, education, you have this set of best practices that you're leaning for, leaning on, and in my case, you're trying to drive really deep operational organizational change and community change around an organization. You're butting up against that daily, and in really, frankly, kind of heavy ways, um, ways that call into question sometimes your integrity, mm-hmm. your competence, and um, you know, I, I think it's important to have these networks where you can bounce off. You know, should, what can I learn from this? Should I pay attention to this? Is there value here? And in some cases, be very willing and confident enough to say, no, I, I believe in what I'm doing. I believe this is the right path and to follow that path. Those are all just fantastic observations. I want to throw one in uh, from my perspective as you've been talking and listening about this, that um, as somebody who is a full-time consultant now, um, when people write you what to them seems like a very large check compared to what they might pay their average ordinary person or whatnot, there is not as often the, wow, that was great work and we're really excited about it and thank you kind of feeling that you maybe get when, you know, Dan, you were talking about how sometimes there's a lot of good, you know, um, good work kinds of comments and, uh, right, get those kinds of things when you're on staff, but when you're coming in short term and not there all the time and all the rest of it, I think that you don't get that kind of feedback as often. Um, but the flip side of it, if something goes wrong, I think that the client might go, well, I'm paying you a lot of money. They may over kind of feedback in the other direction if they're not 100% thrilled with the outcome. And Michael, to your point, if what you're doing is trying to raise money, mm-hmm. there is very few times in the world where they're like, yep, that was enough money. Thank you. We're all done. We're all good. <laughs> Don't need any more. Thanks. That's great. <clears throat> Most often, people would like you to have raised more than has come in in that period. Um, but that said, I want to um, reflect for a moment that I think uh, when I do get the the feedback from a client, like, that was really helpful. We hadn't thought of that. This was really great. There is a voice in my head that goes, yeah, that wasn't my best work. You know, I, I could have done more, could have done better, could have, you know, more time, more energy, more something. I, I could have done more. And I had this conversation with a different confidant, not in the cohort, a little while ago. And she challenged me. It's like, okay, so when have you done your best work? When has that happened? And I'm like, oh, right, there's there's never been my best work. There's always that voice that is like, I could have done just a little bit more, a little bit better, a little bit different. And it's really good to be able to get outside of the relationship with the people that are paying you to, to have that go, you know, they seemed happy, and I'm okay with it, but I would like to have you know, really done all these great and amazing things, but there's the the practical necessities of only so much time from the client, only so many volunteer resources from the client, only so much time I can put into it. 
eventually you have to stop and and put that on the table. And it is really helpful for me anyway to be able to come to some people like you and talk about those things and and have somebody kind of go, well, okay, I, I get what you're saying, but is, is there ever a time when you've been satisfied with, with the work and felt that it was the best that it could be and, and get that reality check and go, oh, right, that hasn't been part of my experience yet and maybe not part of your experience yet. And that's good to know that it isn't just me. And I think that's one of the things that I want to um, kind of throw out here as we go around maybe just one more time, because with this many people, we run out of time quickly, um, is, is, you know, how do you seek to then to feedback to other people that you work with, knowing what you've known from this relationship with a cohort, that not everybody has that. Um, and sometimes you do want to be that um, honest feedback that Shannon talked about a little while ago, going, you know what, maybe that really isn't the right thing for you, um, but not sure that you have that kind of relationship sure. with that person where the folks that we went to school with maybe we feel like we do have that relationship how do you provide that level back out for what we maybe see from our, our cohort and our team so with with that thought um, I'm going to just kind of go back around the way that we started um, so Derek if you could kick that off you know I think um, I, I think because of you know I find at least because we have that experience of graduate school because we have that experience of cohort I think people place a certain esteem on that and will seek it. Um, you know, I've experienced people seeking that out. I think it's really important to first understand what is the relationship I have to this person and is the nature of this relationship one in which they are, are A, seeking, or B, are open to that feedback. Um, you know, when you're in an executive director role, when you're in a community leadership role, you, you're constantly put in a position where people are asking for your opinion, and I think you can kind of get the blinders on and think like yeah. that's how everybody expects me to show up. <laughs> and then you just kind of become the annoying talking head. So, um, you know, for me, I think it's just about moderating. Is this a relationship where it's even open to that and be where I actually have something to add? Because I think that piece around that you mentioned, your best work, I think for me, there's the question of, am, you know, because of my role, because of whatever, however I show up in this conversation, do I actually have something to add? You know, do I actually have some constructive feedback? Um, I, I don't think we should always expect that we do. Shannon. Um, Derek, I just want to kind of pick up on that and say I am most impressed, specifically at like board meetings, when people stop themselves from talking. <laughs> <laughs> and that that discernment of my ideas are the best or I, I know how to solve this problem. Um, that discernment of kind of checking yourself and, and frequently is uh, probably one of the most powerful things I see in action. I aspire to it. I, I, would, I say I, I fail at it more than I succeed, I, and that's okay. Um, I'll keep trying. Um, so I think that's really interesting to think about when you really not have something to add to the conversation and to pull yourself back from that. I also witness when people do that, they seem like the most approachable person in the room to get feedback from. <laughs> because it seems that they have a, a gauge or a filter on, again, I come back to that authenticity, that realness, that this is someone that knows themselves and may, I think they are, when that kind of thing happens, they are also exhibiting um, something that, that makes them vulnerable. I don't know, somehow that opens up a I guess, a, a, a space for kind of um, shared trust. Um, 
I am I am a person who really likes feedback, and so I listen for other people in the room that seem to want that. Um, and I also think it's really important to know when it's not helpful. Again, that like someone isn't open to that, or they're not interested in growing, they're not interested in um, in, in in your perspective, and that's also okay. So um, I think. Um, there's a there's a gauge about when um, there's a gauge to know when are you really going to get something um, or when do you really have something to give and you know when you don't. Mm -hmm. Michael, well, if, I guess I'm kind of piggybacking off what what you say. You talk about your best work. Something I learned. So when I worked in the telecom industry, and one of my mentors told me, I'm admittedly a uh, struggling person who doesn't try to be perfect, aka I used to be a perfectionist. And the one thing he told me was, focus on excellence, not perfection. There's no such thing. I mean, it, it's so simple, it's kind of profound. And I guess sometimes when I see people that are kind of look at things perfect, I, I say that and I just I see the gears changing in their head you can see it in their eyes and it's just and when I you know maybe talk to them again I hear about that I mean it, it changes my philosophy on on everything I mean it's I mean I'm always looking to learn people always look and learn but if you focus on your best effort you're always going to continue to prove improve and if I think if you're too much a perfectionist, you're just going to continue to beat yourself up and not grow professionally and personally, mm -hmm. and maybe not even be able to provide people with good constructive feedback. But I mean, that works for me. So I guess everybody's different, but yeah. Thanks. Dan. So I think Michael touched on it a little bit. Um, coming at it kind of from my experience in the IT uh, world. I don't know if this is the case anywhere else, but lately there's been a trend of avoiding the term best practice hmm. in favor of better practice. Huh. Um, being that best implies that there is no other way to do it better than that. Um, and like any other work, there's so many ways to get it done, right? Um, <clears throat> the idea that having just one way um, can shut off maybe a lot of other people's ideas or creativity or thinking, okay, now I just have to follow this script or this recipe and, and I'm following the quote unquote best practice. Um, and you know, like the, the adage goes, uh, perfection is the enemy of good mm -hmm. or perfection is the enemy of done. <laughs> um, and you can really get hung up in all the little tiny things that you could have done differently or whatever. And we're all our own worst critic. Um, somehow we've all managed to silence the voice that says, Oh, I could have done that a whole lot worse than I did. <laughs> but that I could have done it better. That guy keeps uh, keeps talking in our ear. Yeah. But um, so I don't know. I kind of like to to see that mindset spread a little bit more. Definitely seek out better practices. There's always a way to do it better. Um, but don't necessarily consider that you know the way someone told you or the way you've seen um, or the way maybe you figured it out is the best practice um, because I put money on it that it is not. And Jason? Yeah, I don't know that I fully remember the question right now because I'm just <laughs> really basking in the value of what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just listening to this conversation and 
things that I struggle with. That's I'm gonna write that down, Dan. Never could I say I could have done worse than, than this exists. <laughs> um, I think yeah, I think the question was something about how do we help others, mm-hmm. and I think that you know the key, regardless of your position, is you know, to model what you want and to, and to do your part in creating a culture of, of feedback and improvement. And I think that you know to. Derek's point, I felt myself nodding a lot about knowing when to say things and when not to say things. But when you do say things, I think the importance is that that you're genuine in that feedback. And don't don't just profusely give attaboys or attagirls. Um, be genuine and don't be afraid to give, don't be afraid to catch people doing good things with specific feedback. I think that can sometimes, sometimes it can be just so generic. Um, you know, you do need to be very specific about what they've done. And I feel like I've learned a lot um, just in parenting. Hmm. <laughs> and it's it's not the same. I know that they come across condescending, but it's, you know, so much of it is, is, is affirmation. And But the genuineness allows the opportunity for the difficult conversations, which I think is really the hardest part of all of it. I mean, it's always easy to tell someone they're doing a good job. But if you only tell people when they're doing a bad job, it, it gets much harder for them to value your opinion. And that's, yeah, it's, it's just modeling it. Um, and, yeah, I just want to echo what Derek and, and Shannon both said about make sure that when you do talk, you're adding value. Whether it's, it's constructive feedback or positive affirmation, make sure there's a purpose in saying it. Because, yeah, I mean, in, in my position, executive director, people want my opinion all the time. And it's it, it can be exhausting. And so, uh, yeah, just be thoughtful about that. And, and one thing else I want to add in here, because I think, you know, Steve, you started with some very... You know, vulnerable thoughts yourself, you know, things mm-hmm. that challenge you, you know, and if, if there are things that, that you can never get to where you can't, you can't acknowledge the positive things that you've done and you don't trust the positive feedback that you get, and I've struggled with that, you know, it, as much as a network is important, don't be afraid to add professional help to your yeah. network, mm-hmm. whether that's a, a career coach or yeah. whether it's uh, a, a, you know, a personal therapist. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I added a therapist to my repertoire in my first year as an executive director, because there were things that I was really struggling with, and I think that you know, there's nothing wrong with doing that. No. And I think people need to know that that's an option, and yeah, just keep doing the best that you can. It's a really good point that um, some of those relationships, a uh, career coach, a uh, life coach, a uh, therapist, whatever, um, one of the joys of that is you can schedule those people. And all of our friends that are around this table, let me tell you how many times we went round and round trying to find a time of how many we could get in one room at one time um, is really challenging. So there are a bunch of other folks from our cohort that could not be at this table that I just want to acknowledge. They are equally as important and fantastic human beings, and just we could only grab so many at any one given moment. So a shout out to everybody that we went to school with. Um, one of our, our um, cohort mates responded to me when I um, asked about availability saying, well, I'm not working in the nonprofit sector anymore, so I'm going to bow out. And I'm like, you're still important here. That doesn't, in this conversation about nonprofit work, about cohorts and, and the nonprofit posse, I said earlier, it's like my group of people doesn't matter if your particular job today isn't there. You're an important person in this conversation. So to the rest of the team that could not be here today, we are just as grateful. Um, and I, am, in particular, am just so grateful for all of you taking the time to share these thoughts with everybody in the podcast audience and uh, just grateful for you as people. So thank you all very much. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.